You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Ivan. Hi, Bob. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. Uh, you are Ivan uh, Kachanovsky, if I've got that pronunciation right. Uh, you're a political scientist. You teach at the University of Ottawa. Um, yes. You're also of Ukrainian descent. You grew up in Ukraine. Uh, and a lot of your work uh, in political science lately has been about Ukraine. Uh, you've done a lot of work on kind of the uh, pivotal events of 2014 that set in motion a chain of events that that led to war. And I know you think there's some uh, misunderstandings that are very prevalent in the West about what exactly happened uh, in 2014 during the, the Maidan revolution. Uh, I want to talk about all that. But I also want to talk about things that you think are misunderstood in the West more broadly having to do with Ukraine, things about the, the current state of the war, but also things uh, about, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian society, Ukrainian politics, uh, uh, things that might help us understand what's going on now and, and how we um, got into this situation. Uh, before I do any of that, I'd, I'd just like to ask for a little bit of background information about you. What what part of Ukraine did you grow up in? Uh, I was born and grew up in western Ukraine, mm -hmm. Poland, in, in the town of Lutsk, uh, in Volhynia. And um, I got my uh, education at the Kiev um, Institute of Economics, Economic University. And um, I was uh, almost expelled from university for writing my final thesis about a kind of economic system in the Soviet Union, which I said would collapse. I was likely to collapse in 1990 when I wrote my thesis. And uh, I also wrote it in Ukrainian and using a Western economic theories and a series of Western sociologists called Max Weber. Mm -hmm. And I was told by my head of the department, they're going to expel me for doing this. They had no problem that I wrote in Ukrainian. And this is um, just one example of my background. Afterwards, I could not go to graduate school in the Soviet Union or Soviet Ukraine. So I uh, finally, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I was able to go to graduate uh, program at the Central European University, which was uh, founded by, and funded by George Soros in the Czech Republic. And hmm. afterwards, I went, I went and got my PhD in the United States. Actually, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on regional political divisions and conflicts in Ukraine and Moldova. And this is uh, uh, was a very important issue, which I researched, uh, researched since uh, I wrote my dissertation in 2002. Okay, let me, so what, what was so controversial about uh, what you were writing in your, uh, in your thesis or dissertation in Ukraine? Was it that you weren't supposed to be so critical of the Soviet economic system or what? Uh, yes, and uh, they, when even I submitted my proposal, to my uh, department uh, for final thesis, I had all excellent marks. And uh, they uh, told me they could not accept my proposal because I proposed to write based on a series of Western economists. 
like Keynes, oh. um, Hayek, and Max Weber, who is classical sociologist, yeah. one of the top sociologists. They said you cannot do this. Uh, you you need to write based on what we have, like ideologies, Soviet, like masses, masses, yeah. Leninism, and so on. Uh, but they told me they have no problem with uh, my proposal that they're going to write in Ukrainian, and so I wrote in Ukrainian anyway. But they said this is okay. You can write in Chinese, but no problem. But there was issue with ideology, and I think this is uh, kind of a very common issue. Now, because the same people who told me that I could not write this thesis afterwards, the head of this department, he became advisor to uh, to uh, one of the top Ukrainian oligarchs, Yulia Tymoshenko who got her PhD, uh, I think even without writing this, but this was just one example. They changed their views very rapidly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and this, like, nothing happened. And this is also one of the issues because I was one of the few dozen people who attended first uh, anti-Soviet or pro-democracy demonstration in Kyiv in 1988. Mm. So I was, uh, there were, uh, there was like secret police. They arrested, I think KGB, they arrested, uh, one uh, woman for trying to display Ukrainian flag. So this mm. was considered to be crime. And, and this you, is. And you were part of that movement, uh, that yeah. was at that point being oppressed. Um, uh, so yeah, I would imagine, uh, I, I would imagine they had trouble with Hayek in particular, <laughs> but, uh, uh, among the economists you were drawing on. But, but let me, you mentioned the, the language issue. And so this is, Something I think that I don't understand entirely. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you hear the term ethnic Russian. And, uh, you know, in other words, Ukrainians who are ethnically Russian, and they seem to, they are said to be concentrated mainly in the East. Uh, but it, I gather it's not so simple that by ethnically Russian, you mean anyone who grew up speaking Russian, right? Uh, or is that what you mean? But what do you mean by, what, what does the term ethnic Russian mean, if anything, to you? Uh, yes, I, I gonna, this is a very important issue. I just, if I can briefly add, I was uh, using different economists, including Alfred Marshall, his uh, classical textbook, which was uh, published in 1922. And I went to a library of my university in Kyiv and I opened this textbook. It was published in 1922, but nobody opened this. I had to cut pages. And this is like classical <laughs> economists who founded modern <laughs> economics, Alfred Marshall. So this is just one example. So, and I, I think the issue of, um, Ethnic Russians is very important, and there is confusion also about this issue because uh, almost half of Ukrainians speak uh, Russian as their mm -hmm. main language. Mm -hmm. This is not their native language, but a lot of Ukrainians, specifically uh, in the east and uh, south of Ukraine, speak uh, Russian as a main language, or they spoke uh, before this war. And uh, many of them are ethnic Ukrainians, or most of them are ethnic Ukrainians. So ethnic Russians are a minority in Ukraine. They were approximately 17% of the population, according to the latest census. And their number continues to decline because there's intermarriage and... Um, there was also after the war in Donbass, a lot of uh, people who are ethnically Russian, they moved to Russia from Donbass because of the war. And also, uh, basically, ethnic Russians are concentrated in two main uh, regions of Ukraine. And this is also very important to understand about conflict of Ukraine. They are majority of the population in Crimea. And this is one reason why there was support for uh, annexation by Russia, for joining Russia in Crimea when uh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also close to half of the population in Donbass. 
And this okay. is another reason why there was separatism in Donbass. And I wrote this in my dissertation, which I later published. So this is a very issue, which was a very explosive issue in terms of uh, Russian minority, ethnically Russian minority. And what does what? But, but what does what does uh, ethnically Russian mean? If 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 there are if there are people in Ukraine who grow up speaking Russian as their main language, but you refer to them as ethnic Ukrainians, right? Yes. How do you tell the difference? What is it that that is distinctive about ethnic Russians if it isn't just the fact that they grow up speaking Russian? Well, this is like, a, for instance, as example of the United States, uh, immigrants from Latin America, mm-hmm. they um, they uh, would be like uh, they would be uh, considered to be Hispanics uh, in mm-hmm. the U.S. Uh, but when they switch to the language, they, when they start to speak uh, uh, English. Mm-hmm. In their everyday life, or basically as their main language, they still would become, uh, they still considered to be Hispanics. Mm-hmm. As one example, the same would apply to ethnic Russians. So they, uh, they originated from Russia. Many of them came um, from the Soviet Union, uh, and specifically from Russia during Soviet times, in particular in Donbass and Crimea after Russia. Uh, uh, took control over Crimea uh, from Turkey mm-hmm. uh, in. Uh, Two centuries ago, this was this okay. region was populated by so, Russians. So, does ethnically Russian mean either they came, they moved from Russia, or are descended from people who moved from Russia? No, uh, they're considered. Yeah, they're that's considered what an ethnic Russian is. Uh, yeah, they basically consider themselves uh, like uh, Russians of origin. They originate from Russia. They're ethnically Russian, and this this is also very distinctive because ethnicity in the Soviet Union is not the same as kind of in the United States. Mm-hmm. But when, when in the US, it's mostly about kind of racial. Uh, race is more important. In the Soviet Union, ethnicity was, was basically defined as uh, as um, a phys- physical. Uh, it, not, it was not possible to change ethnicity. Ethnicity was put in the passport, and a lot of people kind of became um, associated with their own ethnicity. So this means ethnicity is uh, refers to their origins, to their common view of their origin. And these people who consider themselves ethnically Russian, they are associated uh, their origin and mm-hmm. uh, their identity with uh, with Russia in Ukraine. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, if you if you ask, well, who uh, in Crimea uh, supported the Russian? Uh, annexation of Crimea and who in the Donbass supported the separatist movement. Is that almost entirely just ethnic Russians or does it also include some people who aren't ethnically Russian, but for whatever, does it include an appreciable number of people who aren't ethnically Russian, but maybe are native Russian speakers or whatever, but for whatever reason also favor Russia? Um, uh, yes, and a lot of ethnic Ukrainians in Crimea also supported uh, joining Russia, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, they supported the annexation of 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 Crimea by Russia in 2014, according to public opinion polls. And this was conducted even before such public opinion polls were conducted even before this. I analyzed this um, this public opinion polls in my dissertation, in my uh, in my articles, peer-reviewed articles, and in my books, which I publish about this issue. So this was very clear that a lot mm-hmm. of Ukrainians in Crimea and in Donbass also supported joining Russia. So it was not exclusively ethnic ethnic issue, mm-hmm. ethnic division. Um, because uh, I think one of the reasons why um, a lot of ethnic Ukrainians in Crimea and Donbass supported joining Russia is because there was a very strong intermarriage 
between uh, Russians and, and, and Ukrainians. And mm-hmm. they be, basically became culturally uh, associated with Russia. So they were married to Russians or they um, uh, uh, became Russian speakers and, and they politically became also Russian in terms of orientation and supported uh, joining Russia. Mm-hmm. And a lot yeah. of other Ukrainians who were Russian speakers also supported Russian views and Russian orientation, but they did not support joining Russia. And this is also a very key distinction because according to public opinion poll, which I commissioned and was conducted in Ukraine in, in um, uh, April of 2014 by Kiev International Institute of Sociology, only the majority support for separatists, including uh, joining Russia or independence from Ukraine or uh, or uh, autonomy as a part of federal Ukraine was in Donbass. And, and uh, it was not possible already to conduct public opinion poll in Crimea, but it was supported by other public opinion polls. But in other regions, even ethnically, uh, ethnic Russians were a minority, and support for joining Russia was minority. And this applies to Kherson, to Zaporizhia, or to Kharkiv regions, which are also were politically pro-Russian, but they did not support joining Russia uh, in contrast to Donbass and Crimea. Okay, so in the in the in the Donbass, in, in Donetsk, and Luhansk. Uh, immediately after the revolution in 2014, a, you know, separatist, you know, militantly, violently separatist movement arose. I mean, they were willing to be uh, to be violent if necessary. Um, And and I guess one question is how much, you know, indigenous support did that have? Of course, within months, I, I guess five, six months later, Russia sent in troops, uh, I think, and and even before that, they started providing some support. Uh, but I, I guess my question is: to what extent uh, did the separatism arise? You know, independently of Russian intervention, of, of Russian uh, influence. How much would you say indigenous support in those in Donetsk and Luhansk was there? for the separatist movement that arose after 2014? I, I would say this, there was a majority support in Donetsk and Luhansk regions, according to public opinion poll, which I con- conducted and which I published results in Washington Post mm-hmm. in, in July of 2014 and presented in my in conferences and published in my peer review article on the war in Donbass, which became one of the most cited articles on this war. Um, and... Um, According to this research, there was um, basically this was a local you know, um, movement, mm-hmm. mostly a local movement, but it became uh, of separatists who were uh, pro-Russian in terms of orientation, and they this movement started after violent overthrow of the pro-Russian government in Ukraine mm-hmm. in 2014, and this is, was key because before this, uh, separatism was uh, how to say uh, was much less. Uh, issue in Donbass because they had president who was Yanukovych who was from Donbass and he right. kind of um, supported kind of making Russian as a second language in Ukraine and so on, basically uh, closer ties with Russia. So there was no such okay. public support for separatism as became after the overthrow of um, of the Yanukovych government by means of the Maidan massacre and assassination attempts. And this led to this basically conflict starting in Donbass as a result of this uh, violent overthrow of the government. Okay. And, and I wrote about separatism in Donbass in Crimea in my dissertation in 2002 and published in book and because this was the issue even then, before 
analyzed public opinion polls, a similar situation could have happened in Donbass in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1991, mm -hmm. because there was also very strong support for separatism then after the collapse of the Soviet okay. Union in, in Crimea. And this happened in neighboring Moldova. But it, uh, I, I think UK was lucky that it did not happen then in UK, but there was a very strong possibility that separatism mm -hmm. conflict would also start in UK at that time. Okay, so let me... And, let Russia, me... and Russia was very instrumental in supporting of separatism in 2014 in Donbass. And I think right. this was another reason. But, but to, to make sure I understand you, I think the, uh, a common view in the West is, um, you know, there was the overthrow of a, a pro-Russian president, Yanukovych, uh, which there was. Uh, but I think that the common Western perception is that Russia reacted by kind of uh well both seizing crimea which happened and and uh and but but also by kind of creating almost the separatist movement in the donbass and what you're you're saying if i understand you correctly is the overthrow of yanukovych for reasons we can get into uh actually significantly increased the support in in the donbass for the separatist movement, it put the Donbass in a separatist mood. Yes, exactly, and this is uh, this was uh, I think one of the issues which is often neglected by all this uh, kind of uh, public opinion talk, uh, kind of about um, that there was no support, strong support for separatism before this. But obviously, this this was the case because this uh, kind of you have very important change which led to such a rise of support for separatism. Before this, mm -hmm. there was not kind of a such public uh, movement and so on. But it was very easy to predict because there was still, uh, uh, I think, as I mentioned already majority of or popularity of ethnic Russians in this region and uh, and public opinion polls showed that similar during similar conflicts which took place in 1991 during the collapse of the Soviet Union there was also movement for autonomy and for mm -hmm. uh, for joining Russia right. in Donbass and in Crimea so this this was basically uh, very easy to predict and I, I this is why I wrote in my dissertation and discussed this and this was I even mentioned in popular publications before um, before this conflict started, I mentioned that there was possibility of breakup of Ukraine similarly to what happened with Moldova when also the Russian region seceded uh, from mm -hmm. Moldova in 1991. So, and so you, mean you, you predicted this as a consequence of overthrowing Yanukovych? No, I predicted that Maidan, because I predicted after Maidan started movement in December, I wrote an article. De in December, 2013? December 2013? December 2013? Okay. Yes. And I, this was uh, when the Maidan became violent in December 1913. I said this was a very dangerous development because this can escalate into, already escalated into violence, and mm -hmm. this can potentially lead to breakup of Ukraine, similar to what happened in, um, in uh, Moldova and to civil mm -hmm. war in Ukraine. Ukraine. And this is what happened in Donbass, according okay. to all the scholars, majority scholars who research this conflict in Donbass, they classify this as civil war. But there was so, also Russian intervention, military intervention, but this is uh, internal conflict with uh, Russian involvement. Now, now, the U.S., you know, supported the Maidan revolution in a sense. I mean, I think if you said uh, to the people who were there at the time, uh, you know, uh, Victoria Nuland, who was in the State Department and, and so on. And Joe Biden was vice president and, 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 and Jake Sullivan and, and Tony Blinken, and all these people who are now in the Biden foreign policy apparatus. They were they were part of the uh, foreign policy apparatus of Obama. And I think if you said to them, did you support the violent overthrow of the president? They would say, no, we don't support violence. 
uh, although ultimately the overthrow was violent, I think what they would say is we supported the protesters. And yeah, we they would probably concede. We were happy to see Yanukovych go, and we will get into the reasons they were. Um, but 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 I gather you're saying, are you saying if they had understood Ukraine well enough, they would have known that any kind of overthrow of Yanukovych could lead to trouble in Crimea and the Donbass, not just because Russia would react adversely, which also maybe was predictable, but because of the effect it would have on public opinion within Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, I think they knew about this. and uh, There was actually some um, uh, tapes published of conversations between, between leaders of Maidan uh, position. Uh, during Maidan with, uh, with, uh, Western representatives. And in these talks, basically, uh, I think, uh, Maidan leaders basically said that they expected that if, uh, they would win, uh, during the Maidan, if, uh, Yanukovych would be removed. So this can lead to kind of a secession or movement for secession in Crimea and in Donbass. So this was mm-hmm. very clear because this was, this, this were two regions in Ukraine, which were most Russian regions, uh, populated by ethnic Russians with history of support for separatism in Crimea. There was separatist government until the middle of 1990s. In Donbass, there was also a movement for separatism and a referendum, I think in 1994, in mm-hmm. which majority supported a kind of autonomy for Donbass. And this is, I think, uh, became very clear when this happened. And I think it was possible to avoid because it was, uh, how to say, uh, I think Ukraine was politically divided. So if you support mm-hmm. one side, so it was very clear that uh, this can lead to conflict uh, and uh, conflict can become violent, like happen uh, in Yugoslavia and happen in other countries and this is I think I think very dangerous development but I don't think this was just um, kind of um just uh, Western uh, politicians, in particular U.S. politicians, just um, were ignorant or they wanted just peaceful uh, transition because uh, according to two testimonies or two interviews by leaders of far-right uh, Svoboda party Mm-hmm. in Ukraine, uh, which was published in a book by... Uh, that, that's uh, S-V-O-B-O-D-A, right? The Svo- yes. Svoboda Party. It's yes, right it's, party. Called, okay. uh, it's called now Freedom Party, which is uh, originally it was called uh, Social National Party, which was uh, after kind of uh, German uh, kind of uh, Nazi party, but uh, mm-hmm. they kind of uh, changed slightly this and became more moderate, but still far-right in orientation during the Maidan. And uh, according to these interviews by leader of Svoboda, Oleg Tjernibok, and his uh, deputy, who was also deputy head of Ukrainian parliament during the Maidan, mm-hmm. they uh, said in these interviews that, that they met with Western representative. They did not say who was this Western representative, but they said that they and other Maidan leaders met with Western representative, and they had discussion. Uh, this was nine years ago. They said a few weeks before the Maidan uh, kind of... Uh, uh, massacre took place. And they said they had discussions with Western representatives and asked them uh, when West would uh, stop supporting or recognizing Yanukovych, when mm-hmm. uh, Western governments would, uh, would go, would uh, turn against Yanukovych. And Western representatives, according to them, told them uh, that um, uh, if this can happen, if uh, there would be 100 uh, people, uh, casualties basically, if uh, there would be 100 people killed, and they said uh, we, they had discussion if it would be because he said uh, there were already few people, a few Maidan protesters killed, and they said, uh, Western representative told them this is not enough. They said uh, if 20 would be, they said like 20 is not enough. So they basically agreed to 100. And uh, so they this said is, this. 
This is what, and this is what happened. I think this is like uh, just uh, published by uh, by um, kind of and reported by uh, Ukrainian uh, Pomaidan journalists and mm-hmm. uh, and interviews with top leaders of far right party. Which so, which, so let me let me be clear. This is a uh, and I may have lost lost the train here, but uh, the, the uh, there's a recording of discussion among Ukrainian activists who who were part of the Maidan revolution, and they are referring to a conversation with a a Westerner whom they don't name, a Western official. Is that? Uh, yes, there is a, not a recording. There is a book published. Okay, with, uh, with interviews okay. by okay. different Maidan leaders about Maidan. I see. And they said, and they said that we were in touch with a Western leader uh, official whom they don't name, who who actually uh, said, "Look, if you want, uh, they they what this official was advising them on how you overthrow a president, kind of like how much, uh, how much violence do you need, or something like that." No, this basically they said this was like uh, they had a they had a, like a, basically like a, a kind of discussion how many people would be basically how many people would be killed until West Western uh, policy would change uh, uh, kind of recognizing Yanukovych and basically that Western governments would stop recognizing oh, Yanukovych as a leader. What, of, what would it take? How much? Uh, yeah. How how much death would it take that was attributed to the Yanukovych regime? Right. Like, in other words, look, if the if Yanukovych's police kill 100 demonstrators, would that be enough for the West to withdraw support from Yanukovych? And the answer was yes. It's, it's like, that's kind of the thing. No, they did not say who, uh, who what kind of uh, specifically, but they, they said that Yanukovych would be blamed in any case because this is like government. Right. Who allowed, uh, such mass murder, basically. I see. Okay. And in this event, and so they said Yanukovych would, would be blamed in any case. And this is. Okay. I think a very important issue because this is what happened in um, on uh, uh, okay. the 20th when uh, when there was Maidan massacre and almost immediately uh, 100 uh, there was considered uh, to be so called heavenly hundred recognized as a number of uh, Maidan protesters who were killed mm-hmm. even though there were no no 100 killed there was slightly less but they included people who were not even on Maidan who committed suicide or who were killed for other reasons or died from natural causes, they were also included in 100, specifically to create mm-hmm. this kind of image. And almost immediately, Western government officials, including uh, then Vice President Biden and other uh, Western governments, stopped recognizing Yanukovych and basically blamed him for okay. the Maidan massacre. And this is how uh, this happened. And this, I think, a very important issue. And uh, so I don't think this was just uh, kind of... Uh, Western government supported peaceful resolution of this um, conflict, but I think they uh, okay. play a very important role in this in uh, this conflict as well. Okay, I want to back up in time and and talk about how the revolution came about. I mean, first of all, since there's nobody from the Biden administration here to defend themselves, I'll say what they would probably say is, well, this is testimony from two people. Uh, they're claiming that some Western official whom they don't name said this. And they don't have uh, a recording of it. They don't name the official and so on. That's probably what the Biden administration would say. I'm just intervening on their behalf. That's that's probably what they'd say. Right. And that is the status of our knowledge. I mean, it's two people saying this. But anyway, I know you uh, have gathered more evidence bearing on uh, what exactly happened at Maidan. I I, I want to get and who did the killing and who did most of the killing. I want to get to that. And uh, uh, but first, back up and set the stage. Uh, 
Is there anything you want to say in reply to what I just said about what the Biden administration might might say? Um, I think the, uh, I think uh, in the first place they never ask such questions. So this basically is taboo topic. It's totally right. overlooked. No journalist would ask any questions about why this happened, what kind of response would be. So this is like basically mm. issue which is considered to be not existent or even kind mm. of not possible to discuss or some kind of conspiracy theory, which is basically that's why I think it's even important to ask such questions of the Biden administration and to hear their response. But I think this this were not just two people. These were leaders of um, of Maidan opposition. Okay. Uh, one who had it, one of who was leader of Farid's Water Party, who was also uh, one of the leaders of Maidan, who met with Yanukovych in negotiations, who met with uh, Western representatives. There are like pictures of him with um, Victoria Nuland and other mm-hmm. like Western uh, representatives with uh, with McCain and so on. And um, Another was deputy head of the parliament, the one who actually uh, uh, was presiding over what which led to uh, to change of the government, to removal of Yanukovych, because he had it, he became deputy head of the parliament, so he uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, led this uh, parliament session, which after the Maidan massacre, and this was a very uh, kind of crucial moment of uh, the Ukrainian development. But this issue is never even discussed in the West. I think this is why this is so important, and this is not only limited to, to people because. Because there are other kind of testimonies okay. with similar kind of information. And you mentioned Victoria Newland, and of course, uh, something that has gotten some attention is that uh, someone, presumably Russia, uh, secretly taped a conversation she had with the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Of course, this is in the middle of the of the kind of protests and 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 burgeoning revolution. Uh, I, I don't know when exactly it happens. Uh, but they are uh, discussing who they want to uh, be, which specific Ukrainian politicians they want to lead the government after, uh, presumably after Yanukovych steps down. And they say there's a guy whose who's nickname is Yats. His full last name is longer than that. And she says Yats is our guy. And indeed, Yats becomes the, I guess, the, uh, the prime minister um, after the revolution and of course and of course she was uh, she was there she was a very uh, high ranking state department official in the obama administration she was there being very openly supportive of the protesters at least uh, you know the passing out cookies and so on so that that has gotten a lot of attention that that clearly the us was involved in trying to orchestrate at least some events in ways uh that it saw as in its in it in its interest right and, and so um, that, that that tape is out there for people. The transcript of that part of the conversation, uh, if they want to Google it. Um, anything else you want to say about that before we go back before 2014 and set the stage? Uh, yes, I think it's important. I also researched this issue, and I think it's very likely it was uh, recorded and leaked by Russian intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, specifically to kind of implicate the United States. But also, it was often misrepresented because, according to this uh, uh, phone call, they were discussing not. Kind of, I don't think they were discussing Ukrainian government after overthrow Yanukovych. They were talking about uh, basically proposal by Yanukovych at the time, a okay. few weeks before the Maidan massacre, to uh, to basically offer uh, positions in his government to Maidan opposition leaders, and uh, so specifically he even was willing to to make uh, Yatsenyuk or Prime Minister okay. of of. Um, 
of, uh, of, of his government and also to include Klitschko, who was another Maidan leader in his uh, government. Basically, and this is why uh, they had discussion between Victoria Nuland and uh, U.S. ambassador about this issue. But this is, uh, I think this was just one evidence. This is uh, because after Maidan, uh, there is a lot of evidence which is of similar involvement of U.S. officials, including then Vice President Biden, in selection and, and appointment and dismissal of top Ukrainian officials, so this, mm-hmm. including Yatsenyuk. So this this has happened uh, many, many times. So this was not isolated incident, but um, okay. but I think this phone call did not uh, refer to kind of overthrow Yanukovych, it referred to kind of offer okay. of, of opposition, basically opposition politicians, uh, positions in the government of Yanukovych. So, so they were talking about a deal they were going to offer President Yanukovych. Yats becomes prime minister, is part of the deal, and Yanukovych was going to remain president in that um, scenario. No, this is uh, Yanukovych actually offered such a deal, basically to opposition, uh, because okay. uh, he he tri- basically he tried to placate opposition because Western uh, like governments they right. were um, saying you cannot use force against Maidan opposition, so he tried basically to buy them by even using money or just giving them positions in the government just to end this um, Maidan. Protest. And okay. That's why he was willing to do this. He removed his um, his own prime minister, who was uh, mm-hmm. he, who was uh, called Nikolai Azarov, Mikola Azarov, and uh, he was considering to appointing uh, kind of Yatsenyuk uh, and other okay. leaders into his government. Okay. So so uh, you're saying on the one hand, um, they weren't at that point. They weren't kind of plotting for the post Yanukovych, deciding what the post Yanukovych regime would be. They were talking about who. A prime minister might be whom Yanukovych accepted and coexisted with. Yanukovych remained president. On the other hand, you're saying this isn't the only evidence that the U.S. was very actively involved in trying to orchestrate events. Is that do I have that right? Okay, yes, that's correct. That's okay. That's important. So let's go back uh, before 2014 um, and uh, and set the stage. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion of the NATO issue. Of course, uh, Russia was very opposed to uh, any encouragement of Ukraine to join NATO. And in 2008, famously, the Bush administration convinced the reluctant European leaders to assert that, yes, Ukraine would eventually become a member of NATO. Uh, I think uh, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of how big a factor was that and ultimately leading to the war. There's a, uh, a there's also an issue about the European Union and, and, and the, the 2014 protests were were more, much more about the European Union issue. And tell me if I have this right. So uh, the European Union wanted Ukraine to take a step toward EU membership, uh, sign an association agreement or something. Uh, Vladimir uh, Putin very much didn't want uh, Ukraine to ever join the EU. Uh, for one thing, that would have meant higher tariffs uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, very much as if Mexico said we're leaving NAFTA and joining some other trade bloc, that would mean now it's going to cost more to import things from Mexico. Mexico's going to have to pay higher tariffs when we export things to them. That would be part of the deal of, of Mexico joining that other uh, bloc. Something comparable would have happened if Ukraine uh, had gone to the EU. Putin very much wanted to have his own trade bloc, including Belarus, Ukraine, whoever. Um, and, and and so he um, he 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 encouraged Yanukovych. And 
to um yeah, I'm thinking maybe we should step back a little and, and just say, yeah, President Yanukovych had been elected uh with the support, uh, much more support from the East than the West, right? In other words, much more support from ethnic Russians and other maybe Russian-leaning Ukrainians than the, the people in the West where you grew up, which is more pro-Western, uh, more anti-Russian. Uh, and so, he, you know, Yanukovych, his, his constituency naturally steered him toward uh, Putin's way of looking at things, right? And, yes. and, and, and Putin didn't want them to join the EU Yanukovych kind of vacillated. He was going to sign on to the EU. And Putin offered, uh, you know, large subsidies to Ukraine to not join the EU, to change course. I think like $15 billion or something. I don't know what other forms of influence he may have brought to bear on Yanukovych. I don't know. But in any event, Yanukovych changed, changed his mind. He was leaning toward the EU thing. And then he said, you know, then and then Putin successfully persuaded him. And and he changed course. And that started uh, the protests uh, in in the Maidan, mainly from these Western leaning people, largely in Western Ukraine. Is that is that all right? Uh, I think there are some issues which are important also to uh, kind of to clarify. Okay. The European Union agreement, association agreement, which was uh, initially uh, supported by Yanukovych and the, and later renounced by Yanukovych, did not involve any possibility of UN membership in European Union. And this is what specific policy of European Union leaders at the time, and including countries like Germany and France and Netherlands, they did not want even to offer a possibility or prospect or recognize in this agreement any prospect of Ukrainian membership in the European Union. I think this was a crucial issue because I wrote in my op-eds even like more than 20 years ago, I said that only chance for Ukraine to become like a successful country, peaceful, peacefully resolve conflicts, regional divisions, separatism, and, and, and become economically prosperous country and democracy like uh, like Canada or the United States or Czech Republic or Poland would be to join the European Union. So this European Union membership was, uh, I think, only solution uh, which could have also prevented the current war between Russia and Ukraine. But it was not supported and not even discussed even prospect in the future. Possibility mm-hmm. of Union, European Union membership was close to Ukraine until after, uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine this year. And see, I think this is one of the issues which is very important because they, so, uh, an association agreement also only offered Ukraine a free, uh, kind of, uh, some access to, to European Union market and European Union also got mm-hmm. access to U- Ukrainian market. And this is why Russia objected because they said this would, um, they wanted uh, Ukraine to join, uh, Putin wanted Ukraine to join customs union with Russia. Mm-hmm. And the uh, European Union said this is not possible. And, uh, and uh, Russia said this right. uh, also would not be acceptable. And this is why reason, uh, why Yanukovych changed his, uh, his uh, initial uh, attempt to kind of sign this agreement because he said this would be very damaging for Ukraine because Russia was at the time main uh, market for Ukrainian exports. And the European Union uh, membership did not offer such possibility. I'm oh, sorry, European Union Association agreement, agreement did not offer such possibility and it also did not offer any prospect for Ukrainian membership of, UP, uh, of European Union. Okay. So you, your view is that it would have been possible in principle for uh, Ukraine to actually fully join the EU if the EU had been receptive to that. Uh, 
And I think in your scenario, Ukraine would not join NATO. And you think that could have worked? Because I think some people would say, look, the European Union uh, membership in the EU is so was so threatening to Putin uh, in itself, Ukrainian membership, that he he probably would have caused trouble, even if it didn't come along with NATO membership. But that's that's not your view. You think there could have been a stable solution involving EU membership, not NATO membership, but the EU didn't wasn't wasn't in a mood to offer that anyway. So it's kind of a moot point. Is that right? Yes, I think this was the key issue, and I, I mentioned this in my media interviews, in Canadian television interview, in my publications before the war, is uh, before Russian invasion of Ukraine this year. I'm sorry, last year, and this was a kind of possibility of peaceful resolution of conflict if the European Union would agree, to even not to become for Ukraine to become member of the European Union, even to offer. Uh, a kind of prospect of Ukrainian membership in the future, mm-hmm. or kind of become you can become candidate for European Union membership, like many countries in Balkans, because in in the former Yugoslavia, all the countries basically, including Kosovo, uh, were offered a prospect of European Union membership. Mm-hmm. Some of them became uh, like Croatia and Slovenia became members of European Union, and other were offered membership in the European Union uh, is a, uh, as a, a part of negotiations for candidate of uh, European Union membership or potential members of European Union. So this was specific policy of EU and Germany in order to avoid repetition of similar uh, violent conflicts which took place in uh, ex-Yugoslavia and Bosnia, in uh, Kosovo and so on, in Serbia and uh, in Macedonia. And uh, they, But they did not apply the same logic to Ukraine. And I think this was very big tragedy because I mentioned that uh, Ukraine could have become a member of the European Union or have a prospect of European Union membership. And Russia at that time and now, even after the start of, of the war in Ukraine, Russia did not object to this. They objected to membership of Ukraine in um, NATO. They did not uh, kind of specifically rejected membership of Ukraine in the European Union. And I think this was very key. And uh, there was even possibility of such agreement, mm-hmm. I think a real possibility of such agreement, which could have prevented this war. But unfortunately, I think um, Western governments, they, uh, I think they, uh, specifically European Union governments, they, uh, governments, they did not consider an administration and leaders, they did not consider such option. And now I think it's already too late because... Um, this is uh, kind of, it's not possible to to have similar situation now. And I'm guessing that, I mean, if this was to have worked, if EU membership was to have worked uh, and, and Putin was going to be happy enough with that not to cause any trouble, you might want to pair that with an explicit agreement that Ukraine not join NATO. In other words, that's what Putin would be getting in exchange for calming down about European Union membership. Is that the scenario? Yes, exactly. Because in such case, you have uh, all the basically all the uh, parties of this conflict would win. Uh, mm-hmm. Ukraine would become uh, would have a clear prospect of becoming a European Union member, which was would be like very beneficial for uh, Ukrainian economy for Ukrainians. Many Ukrainians supported European Union membership, even so slightly less in the east and in the south. But there was no such opposition as division as concerning NATO, because in NATO membership was opposed by many Ukrainians in the east and in the mm-hmm. south, and it was opposed by Russia. So there was a possibility, real possibility of uh, also Russia getting um, agreement that there would be no NATO membership for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of uh, this I was mean- like, uh, for instance, like Finland. 
Austria, which had similar situations, the mm-hmm. members of European Union, but not members of NATO. So then the neutrality of UK was kind of also was would be beneficial to European Union countries and also to the United States because I said, this was my view, because there would be no major war in Europe, mm-hmm. which now kind of is underway. And I think this was, I think, I think I might have kind of misunderstood, misjudged kind of policies of Western governments in this regard because kind of I, I thought that this they would consider to be, they would not allow this war to happen kind of because it will be very dangerous. But uh, I think this is now happened. And I think, uh, I think this is like a big tragedy for Ukraine because now it's not possible, I think, to have such plan. Even so, there was such possibility even uh, after the start of a Russian invasion uh, last year. But I think now it's too late because other events took place, like annexation of uh, parts of Ukraine by Russia. Mm-hmm. So it's now would be almost impossible to reach such agreement. So it must have been frustrating for you, like in 2012, 2013, whenever, as you were thinking this through, and you 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 had this plan that you thought might work, uh, EU membership along with explicit rejection of NATO membership. Yes. It must have been frustrating that you you couldn't get people in the West to pay much attention to this kind of uh, solution. And if so, what is it that you think kept them? from entertaining creative solutions and from understanding in your view uh, that they needed to think about this kind of creative solution. What, is there some kind of systematic blind spot in the West or did, did they have uh, political objectives that were incompatible with this or what? I think uh, very likely that political objectives were um, incompatible with this uh, peaceful resolution of this uh, peaceful prevention of this uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine becoming a war. And um, because I, I believe based on uh, Western policy towards Ukraine after, uh, even so Western government supported um, uh, supported um, violent overthrow of Ukrainian government in 2014. Uh, after this uh, overthrow happened and Russia started to annex Crimea, which was the Russian region populated by ethnic Russians who supported this majority of them supported an kind of annexation of Crimea by Russia. Mm-hmm. Actually, Western governments told uh, um, Ukrainian government, new Maidan-led government of Ukraine, not to use any force against Russian military in Crimea, not to oppose Russian annexation by any use of military force. And this is why there was no fighting in Crimea because Western governments, specifically U.S. government, Obama government, and other Western governments told the Ukrainian government not to use military force. And I think this was my view because they did this not just kind of um, for any other reason, but because they wanted to prevent war between Ukraine and Russia. And I think I believe the similar policy would be kind of uh, continued after, uh, after, afterwards, um, uh, and uh, the Western governments would not uh, kind of allow basically this conflict to turn into war because it would be very dangerous not only to Ukraine, which would be devastating. We, we can see effects of mm-hmm. this war now, but it also would be very damaging to Western governments because Obama, even Obama, President Obama. When he was asked why U.S. government does not support basically kind of openly Ukrainian government with military force and weapons and so on, after uh, 2014, and in particular during the war in Donbass and Crimea annexation, he said that uh, Russia has a much 
basically advantage in this region. It's very close to Russia, so mm-hmm. and and this is not kind of main area in which Western countries would be able to basically defeat Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think for the same reason, I believe that this the same policy would apply to new government, on uh, new administration of Biden, led by Biden, by many people from Obama administration that they would try to repeat the same policy which was uh, pursued by Obama relatively, basically not to allow major, um, war with Russia in Ukraine, because this would be potentially dangerous not only to Ukraine, but also would be very dangerous for or kind of or very negative effect on or also on Western countries, because Russia still has advantage. Russia mm-hmm. can defeat Ukraine, and in such case, it would be also damaging politically, uh, kind of to the West, including the United States, but also would have negative effect, like economic effect and many other effects in other countries, which we also face right now, like inflation, uh, oil prices and so on, and energy crisis and so on. And do you think Obama, uh, do you think Biden could have prevented the war at that point? Uh, yes, this was kind of what, possible what would, to he, what would he have had to do to prevent the war? I think uh, this one was uh, just to offer such a deal, basically to have uh, like European Union membership for Ukraine possibility in exchange for Ukraine becoming uh, not be- becoming na- member of NATO and uh, having also autonomy, basically a mi- implement- implementation of the Minsk agreements, which were signed by okay. Russia and by by okay. Ukraine. And, before, which okay. basically offered uh, autonomy for Donbass, but within Ukraine. Okay, so let's uh, let's get, we'll get back to the Minsk agreements. Let's now do what I've been promising we do: back up and and, uh, and run through the events of 2013, 2014. Again, the issue was uh, this association agreement with the European Union, which I'm sure the protesters hoped would lead to eventual membership in the EU, even though you seem to be saying that you don't think that was going to be acceptable to Europe, ultimately, if I have you right, if I understand you correctly. Yes, specifically, there was a discussion even during this association agreement. Uh, Ukrainian government wanted to include uh, like recognition that you can, can become potential member of NATO, so, or for European Union. Mm-hmm. But the European Union refused to recognize, to even include okay. such membership. It was not even like membership uh, offer or, or, or discussion. Only even offer basically that uh, recognize that you can, can apply to become member of the European okay. Union in the future when all the conditions would be satisfied, like democracy, like economic uh, free market economy and human rights and so on. This uh, uh, this has never happened. They did not even recognize Ukraine as basically as potential uh, mm-hmm. future member of of uh, European Union like in 20 or like 40 years in the future. And this is, I think, was a okay. very big issue. So this brings us to, uh, you know, a very controversial issue. What exactly happened in the revolution? You have written uh, extensively about this. Uh, uh, you presented a paper at the American uh, Political Science Association uh, meeting about this. Um, recently, I know, uh, do I have this right? You had a kind of a version of your analysis it was initially accepted by a journal, and then they changed course and rejected it. And you think that was under political pressure or something? I don't. I don't think you want to name. I think your your policy is not to name the journal. But do I have that right? Uh, yes, this is uh, this is my latest uh, study of Maidan uh, massacre, which is based on uh, revelations from uh, the Maidan massacre trial and, in, and uh, investigations in Ukraine. Okay. There is a lot of evidence which I uh, which I now included since yeah. I first presented my paper at this conference, American Political Science Association annual conference in San Francisco in 2015. I then also published a peer review article in the U.S. Journal 
in American journal, uh, social science journal, and uh, later now I I wanted to publish this uh, new mm-hmm. data from the Maidan massacre trial and investigation in UK, which supported everything which I uh, mm-hmm. which I uh, uh, and, and uh, found uh, found in my previous studies. And I think you have a chapter in some book about this too. Uh, yes, in, in uh, also major academic publisher Rutledge, they publish a book chapter with uh, a summary of my analysis mm-hmm. of Maidan massacre. So people can look at this online. If they do, they'll, they'll, I mean, some of your papers are online and they'll see that it is very densely researched. There's a lot, there's a lot of interviews you cite. There's a lot of uh, video uh, you point to. And, and if, if anybody wants to go down this rabbit hole, I assure them they can spend a fair amount of time. Um, and uh, But basically, here's the, what I think is roughly the prevailing narrative, which you're arguing against. I think in the West, the idea is uh, peaceful protesters assemble uh, the uh, police forces of president of the government, uh, repress the protests, ultimately resort to violence, ultimately kill many protesters. That's why Yanukovych had to go uh, and 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 they might say. Okay, it was a violent revolution in the sense that when Yanukovych fled, yes, he was fearful for his life. There, I think everybody concedes that there were uh, groups associated with the protesters that were militant and had guns. I don't think anybody could deny that. And I doubt anybody could deny that Yanukovych was fearful for his life. Maybe they could, but uh, my, my understanding is that, is that a lot of people would accept that that's why he fled. In that sense, maybe it was a violent revolution. But I think the, the prevailing narrative is that all the all the actual violent, pretty much all the violence that led to the point of his leaving, um, you know, came from his side or was maybe in, in self-defense uh, on the part of people aligned with the protest. Now, do you agree that that's more or less the prevailing uh, narrative in the West that you're taking issue with? Uh, yes, exactly. And this is, I think... Um kind of a narrative which is uh, promoted by Western media, like top media, like Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and all the major media in the U.S., in many other countries, and also by Western governments, uh, the U.S. government and many other Western governments. This is like now a view which is considered to be uh, dominant, and, uh, and they never question this view. This is like taken for granted. This is what happened. And But I am, as a scholar, I specialize in political violence. I specialize in conflicts. I research all the conflicts in Ukraine, Violent conflicts since uh, beginning of uh, 20th century, like World War II, um, Nazi genocide in Ukraine, uh, UNUPA, mass matter of ethnic Poles, I uh, researched uh, war in Donbass, and uh, that's why I was uh, looking uh, live into my Maidan events each day, because this is what I was also researching from the start. Mm-hmm. After it started, I, I mentioned I published an article, op-ed, which saying this is very dangerous, and this is why I following, was, was following all the events and uh, this is why I I think this is a very important issue because as a scholar I found documents I found evidence which contradicts all this uh, all this narrative and this beyond any reasonable doubt I can say that this is now this view is totally false it's mm-hmm. um, it's not based on any evidence on any reality and I collected all possible evidence for almost nine years mm-hmm. so I look into all the evidence starting from this massacre which took place even before so I, I do not see any evidence which can back this view that this is what happened according to prevailing narrative so this mm-hmm. is basically uh, how to say it's, it's uh, kind of one of the fake news or kind of or uh, 
Oh, narratives which are uh, false narratives, and okay. and this is beyond any doubt because according to evidence, even presented during Maidan massacre trial, the absolute majority of wounded Maidan protesters they testified mm-hmm. at the Maidan massacre trial and investigation in Ukraine. They were shot by snipers in the, mm-hmm. in the buildings which were controlled by Maidan, like Hotel Ukraina, uh-huh. and not by the police on the ground. And, and, and police so- are charged. With the massacre. So this is almost almost all of this Maidan protesters who were wounded. They testify about this. They also testify that they saw snipers in this buildings shooting okay. into them and other Maidan protesters. So this is like <laughs> so okay. these are people who were there. They, they were victims and they have any um, motivation to blame the government. Like mm-hmm. the so government saying, and forces. So it sounds like you're saying uh, I, I, I gather two things. I mean uh First of all, I, I think you're arguing that people associated with a protest. And again, there were a lot of these peaceful protesters that Victoria Newland was passing out cookies to, and I'm sure they're perfectly nice people. But associated with the, well, sympathetic to their their, their cause, or at least uh, were these more militant groups? And I don't know what degree of connection there was among these things, but there was, you've mentioned Svoboda. There was also... Uh, right sector is that the name of it? Now you said that yes, Svoboda, and these are these are I gather the people that uh, some of these groups are the people that you think did the shooting that is still not understood in the West. So you've mentioned that Svoboda did have ideologically Nazi roots, had become somewhat more moderate, still far right. How would you characterize uh, right sector? What what is right sector? So right sector was an uh, alliance of different far right organizations, some mm-hmm. of which were neo Nazi. Organizations like uh, uh, football ultras and and, and this uh, patriot of Ukraine, which later became Azov uh, regiment, and some of them were like uh, radical nationalist organizations who were supported like by, of uh, supporters of Bandera, Stepan Bandera, leader of of Ukrainian kind of far right uh, movement. And this is uh, this is during the World War Two era. Yes. Bandera was pro-Nazi. I, I gather that he uh, facilitated the Holocaust. Facilitated. Uh, the murder of Jews and so on. Uh, he's, um, I, I think there was even, uh, wasn't there like a portrait of him on the Maidan during the uh, revolution or something? Am I yeah, wrong? There, there was one portrait on the Kiev uh, uh, city administration, which was uh, took, uh, taken uh, by Maidan protesters. Another portrait of Bandera was near stage of the Maidan, mm-hmm. uh, near, near the main uh, events of the Maidan, near basically in the uh, very center of Maidan, uh, when, uh, near stage in which, which was used by Maidan yeah. leaders to, to speak. And, and a lot of Western politicians also were speaking and my, Bandera portrait was near this stage. So Bandera so, is a, he was a Ukrainian nationalist. Uh, who uh, whom some Ukrainians uh, think very highly of uh, and, and why they do is, up, I guess, up to them to explain. I mean, he was, on the one hand, you know, there was, uh, well, it's a long story, but alliance with Germany uh, kind of helped empower Ukrainian nationalism against the Soviet Union or something like that. There's a long story we don't need to get into, but there's a... There's, there's a reason he's an important figure in Ukraine. Right? Yes, I, if I can add, he was. This is his organization was called Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, mm-hmm. but it was more allied with uh, like a fascist 
uh, movements like uh, Nazi, Nazi Germany, like Italian fascists and so on. And mm-hmm. this, um, uh, but their organization uh, selected as their slogan or their formal greeting uh, slogan of uh, greeting, which was uh, glory to Ukraine or Slava Ukraini and glory to the heroes. So this was first use of this slogan, which now became very popular after the Maidan. Mm. Because it was appropriated by the far right after uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, organizations like Right Sect and Swoboda used this slogan, and mm-hmm. afterwards it became uh, kind of uh, now uh, used very widely even in the West without understanding this. Gloriyuchi Ukraine or Slava Ukraini slogan is the one which was uh, the first mm. organizational uh, greeting which was used by Mandera. But they, in addition to this, they used also uh, like a fascist uh, hand salute, like Nazi kind of mm-hmm. salute along with this greeting. So this was, you need to raise your hand, like a right hand, and so on. This was basically based on Nazi, uh, Nazi kind of, uh, okay. uh, Heil and Nick Heil and uh, raising hand. So this was because of close ideological, uh, kind of, uh, relationship between, uh, between, mm-hmm. Now, and, uh, support for Nazi Germany, but this is now used by many politicians who do not know this or who deny any origin. Right. They say this is like ancient Ukrainian or old Ukrainian greeting and so on. This is based no, at no evidence. I researched this very closely. There is no documentation that this greeting was used before, uh, before Bandera, uh, own okay. in such a form as, uh, glory to Ukraine, so- glory to the heroes. Okay, so when Putin said before invading that he wanted to denazify Ukraine, he, he was talking about these kinds of elements. Now, people who defend, you mentioned the Azov Brigade, which has been important in the war, and, and they've, sub, they've been integrated. They started out as a militia. They've been integrated into the armed forces in Ukraine. And uh, you mentioned them. They have a kind of a neo-Nazi heritage. Their defenders would say that's in the past. There aren't that many neo-Nazis in the Azov Brigade now. I don't want to get into all that. I just want to say there's a whole argument about that. But 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 Putin is referring to this whole this whole issue when when he talks about denazification right uh, yeah and uh, putin basically this is also like putin uh, claims that Ukrainian government is Nazi or that Ukrainian military is Nazi basically is uh, is also propaganda this is also false narrative mm-hmm. it is you should justify illegal invasion of ukraine by russia Ukraine is not neo-Nazi. Ukrainian government is not neo-Nazi. There are no neo-Nazis in Ukrainian government. Uh, and this is like basically a Russian claim is false. And even Bandera was not Nazi because Nazis would not accept uh, like Slavs whom they consider to be uh, kind of uh, subhuman and uh, kind of and also subject to genocide. Um, Six million or seven million people in Ukraine died during World War II, specifically as a result mm-hmm. of Nazi policies. Millions of Ukrainians died. So there was no kind of, so Bandera could not even join the Nazi party and mm-hmm. so on. And this is why kind of the claim uh, by Putin, uh, and he, I think, repeated the same claim even today. That basically saying the Mandela is Nazi and so on, and followers of Mandela are Nazis. This is not or neo Nazis. This is falsely, falsely uh, false claims. So this is you should justify invasion of Ukraine. But actually, neo Azov regiment, uh, even still after its formal incorporation into Ukrainian National Guard, is still uh, very closely associated with uh, this movement and uh, neo Nazi uh, Azov movement, which goes back to Maidan and uh, and uh, and basically patriot of Ukraine, which used to be um, paramilitary wing of Svoboda. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there were these, uh, you know, kind of far-right groups that were armed uh, during the Maidan uh, revolution, and 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 during, you know, uh, from from the beginning, they were they were kind of there and armed. And you're you're saying, I gather, two things. First of all, 
these elements, um, they acted, first of all, as kind of provocateurs in the sense that they shot government police. And that in, encouraged uh, a, a strong reaction from the police, which which then could be videotaped and 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 could be used against the government. A strong, sometimes violent reaction by the police. Um, but but the but probably the more uh, controversial thing you're saying is that if you look at the massacre itself, which is thought of as the slaughter of a lot of protests by the police. Those people, it was a false flag operation, you're saying. Those yes. people were actually uh, shot by these extremist groups. Uh, you know, and, and God knows the protesters didn't support it. They were the ones being shot. But you're saying there were these extremist groups that wanted the protests to lead to the overthrow of Yanukovych. And they actually shot uh, protesters uh, so that it so that this would be blamed on the police. Yes, exactly. This is my argument, uh, and my uh, the evidence I think beyond any reasonable doubt supports this. Uh, uh, this because, as I mentioned, Madan massacre trial investigation uh, and uh, in Ukraine revealed uh, testimonies of absolute majority of wounded Madan protesters that they were shot from uh, not from uh, by the police on the ground in front of them, but they were shot from this uh, Hotel Ukraina and other buildings which are controlled by the Maidan. Mm -hmm. And when I say this is control, building controlled by Maidan, this official statement by Svoboda, few weeks before Maidan massacre, they, they, they check control over of Hotel Ukraina. They said they would check Hotel Ukraina under control and under the guard, and this is what happened. You have videos of Svoboda leaders uh, standing in front of um, elevators to Hotel Ukraina, when the massacre took place, not allowing anybody from Maidan protesters to go to, to capture snipers, but uh, Swoboda leaders would accompany uh, my, uh, one of group of far-right uh, link or right sector link snipers into Hotel Ukraina. There are videos of snipers um, uh, shooting into BBC video of snipers shooting into Maidan protesters and BBC mm -hmm. crew from a room of Hotel Ukraina, which was occupied according to Ukrainian government investigation by one of the leaders of Swoboda party, far-right Swoboda party. Mm -hmm on the 11th floor. And there is another Ukrainian television video of the same the same uh, window of hotel, uh, from Hotel Ukraine room of the right Swoboda deputy in which a uh, journalist, Ukrainian journalist says live that the protesters have been shot from this uh, and killed from this building. There are testimonies from this specific window. There are testimonies, uh, videos of snipers shooting into mm -hmm. uh, from Hotel Ukraine into Maidan protesters, uh, like uh, videos of Maidan protesters led to the Maidan massacre by other Maidan protesters who are not shot specifically to be shot like in front of cameras, there are like um, uh, government forensic examinations which were presented at the Maidan massacre trial, which show that Maidan protesters were shot from Hotel Ukraina and other Maidan control buildings. Mm -hmm. So this is evidence, like there are medical, forensic medical examinations, which show that almost all the Maidan protesters were killed and shot or wounded from uh, very steep directions, from the back or from the side. So the bullets, right the bullets come down from a, a yes. at a steep angle, so couldn't have been uh, delivered by police on the ground. Yes, exactly. From uh, no, because they face, uh, they believe that the danger would be in front because there was police shooting, uh, like a special barcode police unit shooting uh, from the ground, like openly from Kalashnikovs, and this was presented basically as that they were responsible for the massacre later, mm -hmm. and they were charged with the massacre. Even so, when you synchronize videos, which I did. Uh, the time when they sh when the police sh start shooting did not coincide with time when uh, protesters were shot. Mm 
So mm-hmm. it's, they were shooting into, uh, you can see that they were shooting into ground, basically into walls, and they were shooting into snipers in the Hotel Ukraina and other locations, because snipers were also shooting into the police. So this was basically mm-hmm. firefight, and police were not killing and uh, massacring Maidan protesters, they were basically uh, shooting back into Maidan snipers and, and trying to prevent, uh, just stop Maidan protesters in advancing by shooting in front of them or kind of... Or into uh, like teeth or walls and so on. So this is like, uh, this is even uh, kind of Ukrainian government investigation, but this is totally misrepresented because there is no uh, reporting any Western media about this evidence. Mm. Like there are, I found more than 500 uh, witness testimonies about the snipers in these buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are even testimonies, there are statements, official statements by Biden. Uh, President Biden, uh, he, when he visited Ukraine, sorry, Vice President Biden, when he was Vice President uh, at the time, he visited Ukraine and spoke at Ukraine, the, in the Ukrainian parliament. He, he said that snipers killed Maidan protesters, mm-hmm. not police on the ground, because police uh, shooting from the ground. from Wait, Biden, Biden said that? Yes, this is time. Yeah, no, this was I think one year after Maidan massacre. He said this. Uh, the, the, this were snipers who shot and killed Maidan protesters, not the police. Now he may ground. have he may have thought they were pro-government snipers, though, right? No, he he was. Uh, yeah, he he obviously referred to this as pro-government snipers okay, because okay, he, he okay. shot like they shot from the rooftops. But now this is the, so. This is what exactly what my study found in even 2015 that protesters were shot not by. Police on the ground, mm-hmm. but by snipers in, in buildings which are and, controlled and, by Maidan. Yeah, and you're saying if you look at where the snipers were, where the shots definitely came from, these were buildings that were uh, unequivocally controlled by these far-right militants. Yes, exactly, because they, they stated officially that they take control over this uh, building. There is like a testimonies of, um, of, um, of Svoboda activists, and there are videos of Svoboda activists standing basically in Hotel Ukraine, Guarding, uh, controlling ethnos mm-hmm. to this Hotel Ukraina during the massacre. Mm-hmm. They, they even were like in the Guardian a newspaper reported, uh, during the Maidan massacre that they saw several Swoboda party activists with, uh, Kalashnikov, uh, like what's this, bullet, uh, empty bullet cases from Kalashnikovs, like 700 empty bullet cases from Kalashnikov weapons because they said from Hotel Ukraina in Hotel Ukraina. So mm-hmm. now this is totally, this is now denied as conspiracy theories. This is, this is just unbelievable because and, uh, you have so much evidence, like testimonies of, of uh, several dozen persecution witnesses, specifically government snipers testified as a Maidan massacre trial and investigation. That they so were there, were, there were some government snipers somewhere? Yes, but this is very important. They testified, and, and this is according to videos which I also synchronized in in time. So you can synchronize videos. Government snipers were deployed to the Maidan massacre area after Maidan massacre was almost over. Oh, after I, almost everybody, all the Maidan protesters, just few, uh, except few of them were killed. So this uh-huh. means you cannot shoot and killed protesters without being deployed there. So, so there weren't, <clears throat> there were only government snipers after most of the killing had been done. Yes, and they testified that they received order to be deployed there specifically because of reports of snipers who, who shot, who shot uh, in Hotel Ukraina and other locations controlled by Maidan, who shot uh, police and later Maidan protesters. So and the after, snipers, the government snipers yeah. were assigned a job of killing other snipers? No, they were told they had ordered to locate the snipers, basically. They, they were the up there to try to find where the snipers were. Yes, because identify them and also, because they could not go there because this was controlled by Maidan mm-hmm. forces and, and, 
And Hotel Lucrida was also a major uh, hotel for journalists. And this is why uh, kind of they testified that they uh, they asked Maidan leaders to allow them to go to Hotel Lucrida to capture the snipers, but Maidan leaders refused to allow this. Uh-huh. Uh, government snipers basically to, to okay. check for, for the snipers. So, uh, you know, as I said, I haven't gone through all this material. I'm not entirely equipped to because, uh, for example, uh, if, if you go to... Um, I guess on your YouTube channel, there's some videos listed, right? I mean, if people Google you, they can get to the videos that you recommend. And so, for example, there are some videos where they're interviewing people. They're speaking in either Ukrainian or Russian. There are subtitles. Well, well, there are paraphrasals of what they say. And I'm not personally equipped to verify the accuracy of what they're saying. You are, and I assume you're saying that the videos you're directing us to are reliable. In any event, what I would say is, you know, there are at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they sometimes do these exhaustive investigations and assign a number of reporters to really get to the bottom of of things. And what you're saying is if any of these newspapers did this in this case, the evidence is there for them to to uh, write a story that would get a ton of attention and completely overthrow the conventional wisdom about what happened on the Maidan. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And this is also a very big issue because, uh, like, top U.S. media, they, they basically also stay silent about this issue. They pretend this is, like, not an issue at all. Even so... That, that, wait, I'm found, sorry, that what is not the issue? That There, there was no even issue because they said this is like uh, government police, basically, Masek, mm-hmm. Yanukovych basically is responsible. So this is the end of the, of the story and anything else, basically, everything else is conspiracy theory. So this is like argument. So you cannot even talk about this because this is like uh, already in the past. This is like... Um, Everybody is taking this for granted, so there is no need even to discuss this. And this is very important because uh, I found a video from CNN, which was filmed by CNN during Maidan massacre. They filmed uh, one group of uh, far-right snipers shooting into police in front of the, their cameras, which was never broad- broadcast. So they never mm-hmm. broadcast this. And they also filmed the same group of Maidan snipers shooting into Maidan protesters, basically, later from the Hotel Ukraina. And you can see you can see their voices in Ukrainian, and they say they say they were looking for shooting positions, and CNN also never mentions this. I can hear like in Ukrainian basically these voices, and this was reported by Ukrainian journalists at the time who also filmed this group of modern snipers in Hotel Ukraina, but it was never reported by CNN or any other media that there were like modern snipers in in Hotel Ukraina. Even so, they filmed them. Mm-hmm. Also, like uh, New York, uh, New York. Um, um, New York Times, they published this uh, investigation, which was a kind of so-called investigation by uh, New York architecture company um, called C2 Research, uh, hmm. I think about uh, Maidan Massacre, in which uh, they uh, claim that this uh, investigation... What's the, what's the name? Is it the letter C and the number two? Yeah, no, it's uh, like S-I-T-U. S-I-T-U. Okay. And this is like New York architecture company. They are also, I think, involved in butcher investigations recently. So this is basically they are kind of, uh, and they are used by New York Times and cited New York Times by New York Times. But this is just for me, this was unbelievable because this is, uh, this report is still on the New York Times website and you cannot do anything, uh, but it, it's a video <laughs> analysis of the Maidan thing. Um, yeah. They, yeah. Uh-huh. Basically they used uh, some videos. To, to, uh, and uh, they use autopsy uh, mm-hmm. reports from um, of three uh, killed Maidan protesters to mm-hmm. claim that these uh, protesters were killed by uh, Berkut police from the ground that there were no snipers at all. Okay. Um, um, so, so if I can add 
uh, also. Uh, and this is very important because the autopsy reports which they use, which are translated in English, clearly state that this is uh, their kind of uh, reconstruction of this um, of this um, uh, uh, shooting is completely false, like fabricated, because mm. locations of bullet uh, wounds in the body of protesters they change from uh, mm-hmm. like vertical, very steep vertical positions, which are specified in these autopsy reports, like by uh, exact height. So this is all the measurement they are given there, but they change them into horizontal in order to fit to Berkut. They shift them from from the side to also to the front because Berkut was in the front of them, and all these um, uh, uh, wounds of locations of of, of sh- wounded Maidan protesters are from very steep direction, which is points to mm-hmm. Maidan uh, control buildings. Okay. This is very so- important. Okay, so uh, again, I would just say there's there's enough evidence that you have assembled so that, uh, you know, it wouldn't take a whole team of journalists to at least determine whether there's like a story there, as they say in journalism, right? And, and, and it wouldn't even take the New York Times. I mean, you know, there's a number of journalistic periodicals that have the resources. Uh, so I, I, hope, I hope somebody will take a close look. I don't claim to have done that, but it's an important issue. Now, let's talk a little about uh, the aftermath of all this. Uh, uh, for starters, um, so, okay, Yanukovych uh, flees, you get a pro-Western government. Um, one of the first things that the government does, the new government does, is pass some law that's in some sense anti-Russian language. Now, that law didn't hold up. I think it was overturned in the courts uh, or something, but still, uh I think to get back to the fact that people, uh, especially in the East, people who are either ethnically Russian or Russian leaning for, you know, uh, and not necessarily, quote, ethnically Russian. You know, if we if if we ask, why did the revolution uh, so uh, foment uh, separatist uh, sentiment in places like Crimea and the Donbass? You know, part of the answer is they they saw a president they had voted for maybe overthrown uh, violently in their view. Uh, but but also immediately after the overthrow, uh, the government starts doing things that alarm these people, I gather, or at least they did this one thing, right? There was this anti-Russian language law passed. Am I right about that? Yes, this is correct. This was law was uh, adopted by the parliament, but it was not signed by uh, the new president. Acting okay, president that's, so that's why it didn't take effect. Yeah, but it it was a clear signal. This is like a kind of a basically uh, trying to kind of uh, kind of very clear signal to to uh, ethnic Russians in, in Donbass and and Crimea that the policy would change. And this is, I think, one of the uh, of the reasons which precipitated this uh, uh, support for separatism in uh, Crimea and uh, in Donbass and their kind of uh, attempt to join Russia by many people in these regions. A majority of people in Crimea and uh, and cl- uh, about close to majority or uh, about majority of people who started to support uh, separatists in Donbass after this uh, uh, mass- Maidan massacre um, and overthrow of the Ukrainian government, which also not only included Maidan massacre, but also assassination attempts against Yanukovych, which I also must never mention by the means. This is like another... When were the assassination attempts? Uh, this was uh, revealed by the trials of, of Yanukovych in absentia. In, in, uh, for, uh, actually, he was uh, tied in Ukraine and convicted for, uh, for uh, Crimea. After after the he he fell from power he was tried in in 
Uh, yes, he was no convicted not for Maidan massacre, but for basically for a state treason for uh, for supporting annexation of Crimea by Russia. And and it's it's in this period of time that there were assassination attempts again against him. No, they during this trial there were testimonies uh, and uh, by different people about uh, these events because and they testified many of there were many testimonies by witnesses, his uh -huh. uh, security uh, like personnel who many of whom stayed in Ukraine and some of whom uh, fled uh, with him to Crimea and other regions of uh, after this uh, massacre they testified. That, uh, and also like pilots of, of plane and helicopter, uh, pilots who flew Yanukovych after Maidan uh, massacre, they testified that there were assassination attempts against Yanukovych. Specifically, one attempt was uh, against his um, motorcade, his car, uh, his bodyguards was was almost, uh, his, uh, his car was uh, shot at, and there was bullet holes, which almost um, wounded uh, one of security guards near Kyiv. After Maidan massacre, after when when was that assassination attempt? Uh, this period? was uh, right after Maidan massacre, like uh, February twenty okay. first. So this was uh, very closely related to Maidan massacre. When Another did he leave? When did he leave? When did he flee? What date? Uh, he uh, he signed an agreement with uh, European Union uh, Foreign Minister on the, uh, February twenty first, and later uh, at the day he basically flew from uh, okay. from uh, to Eastern Ukraine to Kharkiv, and okay. then. When he um, tried to, uh, to give a speech in Kharkiv, there was also reports of assassination uh, attempt against him. So he uh, did not attend this Congress of local deputies. So he tried to flee to, to uh, flee to Crimea. And in Crimea, when he uh, when he flew with helicopters, uh, uh, helicopter pilots received order basically to kind of uh, to uh, not to to. Uh, Basically, to fly to a government-controlled airport, new government-controlled airport, and that they they would that the helicopters would be shot down if they would not obey the order of a new okay. government. So this was another attempt, and afterwards there was attempt against his motorcade in near Crimea in Melitopol mm -hmm. area, which is now occupied by Russia, annexed by Russia. And this is why I think Yanukovych fled Ukraine because okay. of real assassination attempts, which are supported by evidence. And even former president of Ukraine, first president of Ukraine, Leonid Kavchuk, who is like pro-Western president who kind of supported Maidan, he testified at this trial that he mm -hmm. received a phone call before, okay. before, even before the Maidan massacre, a few days before Maidan massacre, that there would be a assassination attempt against uh, Yanukovych, similar to what happened with uh, Ceausescu, who was former, uh, who was leader of communist Romania, and okay. who was also removed as a result of very similar massacre, which uh, led to many thousands, so thousands of people killed by unknown, by unknown snipers who were uh, later found to be by uh, government investigation to be members of new uh, government, basically supported by new government, which took power in Romania, was very similar okay. to what happened in Ukraine, and uh, Ceausescu was assassinated, uh, right. was executed later. So, so it was very similar. So I hadn't realized, so first uh, Yanukovych fled to more pro-Russian parts of Ukraine, and then and you're saying there were there were assassination attempts on the way, yes. and he finally decided to just uh, go to Russia. Now, let me. Uh, so, what would this Russian language law have done? Just quickly, and then I want to ask you about what 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 kinds of uh, kind of repression of the Russian language are there actually in effect? I think there are there are some laws on the books uh, that exist. What would this law have done? The one that the, that the parliament passed uh, right after the revolution. I think this uh, this uh, law was uh, just uh, kind of uh, most important was symbolic role uh, because it was not adopted 
but it was supported by the new government, and right. this was one of the first decisions by the new government. So this so basically what would it have what would it have done if it had uh, been signed by the president? Well, I think it was would limit the uh, use of uh, Russian language in uh, kind of. In Ukraine, in official uh, government functions, like uh-huh. uh, by, by the government and so on, because at the time uh, when Yanukovych came to power, he campaigned on uh, making Russian language second uh, state language in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, when he became president of Ukraine, he did not implement this. But many local uh, regional governments of Ukraine received power basically under new language law, which was adopted by the Yanukovych party, to basically to give uh, Russian status of regional language, like regional official status, like in Donbass, Donetsk region, Crimea. So this meant basically that people in these regions can use uh, Russian language in official government business, in, in uh, courts. And so, like. the, so the status of the language had been elevated by Yanukovych's party, and they yes. wanted to roll that back. Yes, uh, exactly. Now, there are now ongoing restrictions, I gather, about the use of the Russian language in, in, in schools. Uh, and various other places is that, uh, and maybe that happened as a result of the war. I don't know, but but uh, is that a is that a big issue now? Uh, no, this was a very big issue after Maidan and also before this before the Russian invasion of Ukraine because this uh, policy of uh, kind of 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 restricting use of Russian language in Ukraine in official business in media and in uh, kind of in the movies, for instance, and uh, kind of other uh, kind of cultural. Kind of entertainment and so on was used specifically by Poroshenko, President Poroshenko, and later when Zelensky was elected as president of Ukraine, he promised basically to he was elected by support from so Russian Poroshenko came after Yanukovych. Zelensky, who was a native Russian speaker, yes. came in as a uh, pro peace candidate who who people thought would make concessions to Russia in the interest of peace or something would work out some deal. So I just wanted to set that context. Now, go ahead. Yes, exactly. And in addition to this, in addition to promising peace, uh, Zelensky also promised basically uh, kind of liberalization of language policy and on the use of Russian. He basically was saying uh, that uh, people can speak any language that they want and so on, basically kind of uh, eliminating policy of Poroshenko, who Mm -hmm. ran on this platform of uh, Ukrainian nationalism, making Ukrainian language uh, just one language, basically one church and one kind of uh, army and so on. This was kind of very nationalistic policy of Poroshenko and Zelensky was elected by by uh, the support of uh, people in the Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, in the east and in the south. And he was originally uh, also a, a speaker, a Russian speaker. He, he, didn't, he even did not speak fluent Ukrainian until later when he became a president. After he became president, so uh, kind of. Um, but after he became president, he changed his policy to opposite. He became even uh, what I call a Poroshenko 2.0, like version of Poroshenko. Even uh, he uh, became, uh, in terms of language policy, even more restrictive uh, against the Russian language. He instituted um, restrictions on Russian language, not only in in kind of in um, the field of government or use, but also in the movies and entertainment. Like you cannot, you can only watch movies in Ukrainian or and on television. You have news programs which need to be. In Ukrainian, with some exceptions, like uh, there were uh, language quotas on, um, on uh, radio programs and, and uh, movie so uh, is, is songs deal, and so on. As I understand it, is the is the law now that you can only have Ukrainian language media if you also produce a Russian language version of the same media? Um, no, you can only have a so you if you have a, so. All media which used uh, Russian, a lot of media in UK was uh, only Russian. Had the oh, only I'm sorry, Russian. I, I, meant, I meant the other yeah. way around. You can only yes. have 
Russian language media, if you have a second version of it that is Ukrainian language? Uh, yes, and this was only to online media or printed media. But uh, for television, it was ne- most television had to be in mm-hmm. Ukrainian language. So there was a quota basically on Ukrainian language television. There was also elimination of Ukrainian language, I'm sorry, Russian language in uh, higher education. And in, even in, in high schools and in elementary education, Russian language education was almost completely eliminated or significantly reduced. And this is, I think, very significant change because when I was growing up in Ukraine, I, I, I was like, uh, I, my na- native language is uh, Ukrainian. I, uh, I was educated in uh, school in uh, Ukrainian language. I went to university. I gave my uh, exams, entrance exams, and I mentioned I got my graduate um, and Thesis, final thesis in Ukrainian. There was no issue. And now, basically, this is not possible. Uh, so uh, everything needs to be in terms of Ukrainian, uh, in terms of if you compare the role of Russian, mm-hmm. because in the Soviet Union, Russian language was uh, kind of promoted and russified and so on. So there was issue with mm-hmm. discrimination of Ukrainian language. But now this became opposite. And uh, so now you have a limitation uh, of, of, on uh, Russian language use. And this is very important because many people still speak uh, Russian as uh, their main language, even mm-hmm. after the Russian invasion. And, and I gather this has two effects. I mean, res- restricting the use of uh, Russian language Media, first of all, it's it's naturally going to antagonize uh, Russian speakers in in the East, especially. Uh, but also, it's going to affect the content of the media, right? Because uh, you're going to be less inclined to hear about the grievances of of these same people. I mean, they they have less uh, of of a way of of kind of amplifying their grievances, right? I mean, it affects the content of the media. Uh, yes, exactly. In addition to this, Zelensky also closed all the opposition channels, which were like broadcasting in Russian language, and were associated with uh, this um, opposition block party, which was run by a uh, pro-Russian politician called Medvedchuk and other politicians who are not pro-Russian, but also linked to oligarchic, uh, oligarchs in Ukraine. And they now oppose Russian in- invasion, but this, uh, this um, television channels were, were closed. And mm-hmm. so basically all the opposition channels were closed, and now in Ukraine, you have only one news program. This is like almost Soviet Union. There is only one uh, program at news program, which, uh, which right. is required to be shown by all television channels. So there is no kind of uh, alternative views almost on television now. So, you have just one news program, which only promotes views of Zelensky government and so on. And so, he yeah. also, uh, he so also I had thought, just to clarify, yeah. I had, what I had heard, I must have misheard, I had thought they shut down all the during the once the war started, shut down all the TV channels except for one, which carries the uh, the government's narrative. But but what you're saying is the TV channels are still there. It's just that there's only one news source, and they all have to either carry that or carry no news or something. Right? Is that right? No, no. They uh, like uh, uh, Zelensky shut down about seven opposition television channels before the war with Russia. Okay. Before the Russian invasion, and they were now completely eliminated. So they were basically shut down or closed. Um, kind of uh, from broadcast, they were able to show, to be shown on YouTube, and now they are not show, not be able to show at all. They were try to rebrand there, like uh, they changed names and so on, but they could not be allowed. And now, after the start of Russian invasion, Zelensky even required Romanian Ukrainian television channels, which are owned by oligarchs like Poroshenko, who was like using uh, he his, uh, he has uh, two television channels, and he basically even non-nationalistic than uh, kind of uh, than originally. Uh, 
Zelensky was, but Fashanka uh, television channels also were required to be to show all basically mm-hmm. Zelensky uh, program, television news uh, programs. So there is no kind of uh, kind of uh, freedom of the media in Ukraine. It's like Ukraine is not democracy. And in addition to this, Zelensky also um, closed uh, 12 opposition parties for, for claiming that they are associated with Russia. Even so. Almost all of these opposition parties uh, kind of condemn Russian invasion of Ukraine or do not support any Russian mm-hmm. invasion. He also would uh, kind of even persecute um, Orthodox Church, main uh, main uh, branch of Russia of Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which is uh, kind of was historically associated with uh, Russia and still associated with uh, Russian Church, Orthodox Church. Kind of, um, but if, but after the Russian invasion, they also declared their basic independence from Russia uh, in terms of church. But uh, Zelensky also kind of tried to ban this uh, largest religion uh, church, uh, largest uh, church in Ukraine. So he, he shut down this uh, religion that that isn't even uh, it's not Russian Orthodox. It's 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 a Ukrainian identifying church that he thinks is too pro-Russian or something? And he uh, actually, yeah. he's actually shut down the churches? No, no, he, he, he just tries to do this. Uh, so he basically said it's necessary to do this, but uh, he tries to do this. So there is currently a uh, kind of attempt to do this, to adopt such a law, or basically the arrest of this uh, uh, members of this church, leaders of this church and so on, basically persecution of this church because it uh, he says this church is associated with Russia. They, they are called the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church, but historically, uh, like they go back mm-hmm. kind of to... Uh, Kind of uh, to Russian church, they were basically under Soviet Union. They were and still many like Orthodox churches um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, have their kind of allegiance to Russian uh, to Russian Orthodox Church. Um, yeah. And uh, but they became a kind of uh, they they declared independence from this Russian church uh, after the Russian invasion. The Ukrainian Church uh, kind of Orthodox Church condemned also Russian invasion. They did not support this Russian invasion, but this did not stop the, from the persecution mm-hmm. and so on. Because Zelensky supports other uh, kind of yeah. other religious uh, churches, which are easy to control. So this is why I, I don't think Ukraine is democracy. This is another problem with all this Western coverage. Kind of that Ukraine is democracy. Ukraine is not democracy, and Zelensky is not democrat. He's, um, I think, he, similar to Putin in uh, in his undemocratic actions in many regards, and even uh, more extreme in some cases. I mean, I would say uh, again, he's not here to defend himself. What he might point out is that. Is the governments during wartime pretty much always get uh, uh, do more in the way of censorship, more in the way of repression? The U.S. famously interred Japanese Americans just for being Japanese Americans. You know, confined them uh, uh, to you know to these uh, internment camps. Um, but so uh, that's you know to some extent this is to be expected and and may not reflect uh, well. Anyway, that's probably what he would say. But 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 a question um, I'm interested in is why do you think uh, he didn't, in your view, pursue the more conciliatory agenda you expected him to pursue? Right, he he, he campaigned on peace, and presumably, I, I don't know exactly what you would have expected that to involve. Maybe it would have involved uh, reviving the Minsk agreements or something, which we haven't really talked about, or, or I don't know what their status was when he took over. Uh, we can get into those a little bit first. Uh, why did Zelensky disappoint you? Why, why, why do you think, what political forces or whatever, do you think were acting on him that led him uh, not to pursue an enduring peace with Russia 
as vigorously as he might have. And we should add another thing a lot of Americans don't understand is there was a war going on the whole time because once the separatists seized some of the Donbass, uh, there was this uh, boundary line and there were people being killed on both sides. And, uh, and uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, was giving uh, more in the way of military support to Ukraine during this and so on. So there was a whole... Uh, I mean, I don't know that the U.S. weapons were being used in that particular conflict, but there was a lot going on. And certainly one of them was a kind of ongoing civil war. Uh, Why do you think and Zelensky promised to kind of put an end to that, right? Some kind of solution. Uh, I don't know what you think the solution would have been. uh, And you can talk about that if you want. But I'm also interested in the question, why do you think he didn't follow through to the extent that you had hoped? I think the solution to end this war and to have peaceful resolution of this conflict would would be in, to implement Minsk agreements. Mm-hmm. Minsk agreements were signed by Ukrainian government and then kind of Poroshenko, by um, uh, by uh, Western governments, by German and uh, French leaders, and also by Russian uh, President Putin. And they were also signed by leaders of separatist republics, which were not recognized and which were declared uh, independence, but not recognized by any government at the time. So they mm-hmm. were signed in uh, first in 2014 and then in 2015 as a result of a direct Russian military intervention. So Russia directly supported separatists in uh, August of 2014 and then later in winter of 2015 by deploying the military forces in, and uh, using them in combat in uh, against Ukrainian forces without recognizing this, uh, without acknowledging this, in uh, specifically to support separatists and uh, and, and uh, kind of force Ukraine to sign such peaceful agreements. And this is why Poroshenko signed such agreements and this is kind of a... a uh, Zelensky, when he came to uh, power as a result of elections, which are relatively democratic, semi-democratic elections, and he was initially kind of, um, kind of quite open and more democratic than Poroshenko. So let me um, interrupt you and make sure yes. I've got it straight. So the Minsk agreement would have given a certain amount of autonomy to the uh, oblasts or provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. And as I understand it, uh, that would have given them, they would have stayed within Ukraine in their entirety, including the parts that were separatist held. They would have been part of Ukraine. They would have had uh, autonomy. And as I understand it, that would have amounted to a kind of uh, veto power over major foreign policy moves such that they could have vetoed NATO membership so that that would have been a kind of a backdoor way of... uh assuring uh, both the people in the provinces and Putin that Ukraine was not going to wind up in NATO. If if the Minsk agreements had been imp- uh, implemented, as I understand it, that would be one implication. Yes, this is what Russia wanted, basically. This is why they forced you, you can just mm-hmm. sign such agreements. They wanted to give a de facto, it was called autonomy or special status, but it was more, more than autonomy. So this was like almost a de facto confederation of Ukraine in which um, these uh, regions, Donbass, would, would have a power basically to influence entire Ukrainian politics and to block any decision, foreign policy mm-hmm. decision like joining NATO. And this is why Putin supported this because he wanted to use Donbass to kind of have a say not only over Donbass, but also over Ukraine. And th- that's why it was possible 
perhaps some kind of peaceful resolution. And this, I think, very similar mm-hmm. to what, uh, what happened maybe like in Kosovo when the U.S. supported Kosovo independence, basically, or to happen with um, uh, support for U.S. for separatists, Kurdish separatists in Syria and uh, Iraq, which they gave, they received basically de facto autonomy, but also kind of uh, quasi-independence mm-hmm. because they have also power to say of um, kind of decisions, they are not, they can reject national government and so on, but they have, they were supported by the US. So I believe that this kind of solution would be a best compromise. This was and very you, tough. And you thought Zelensky yeah. would wind up implementing some version of this. You hoped that. Yes. And, and he didn't. And why do you think he didn't? Why do you... Uh... I think I did research about this issue I, uh, I mentioned. So based on my research and all the evidence, there were two reasons why Zelensky changed his uh, policy and his promises. One uh, was that uh, there was a pressure from far right. So here, uh, far right is uh, not very, uh, how should I say, uh, numerous in Ukraine. Far right organizations have a li- very little electoral support. They cannot win elections in Ukraine. They cannot even get, many of them get elected to the parliament. But they have, uh, uh, they have, they rely on, on violence. They rely on threat of violence. And they have now kind of paramilitary formations, like and, uh, formations which are formerly part of National Guard or police, like uh, Azov, but they still link to far right. So basically, so you think Zelensky was afraid that they would resort to violence? Yes, and they did already resort. So one example of this, he visited frontline uh, after uh, Paris talks with Putin. There was agreement to basically uh, try to implement these agreements to um, basically move away uh, Ukrainian and, uh, and separatist forces from a line of of frontline to mm-hmm. kind of to separate them, basically to reduce uh, fighting between them. And uh, Zelensky went to frontline. To basically trying to persuade themselves himself, mm-hmm. this far right um, Azov link. Um, yeah, I've seen this video. Video. I think he's talking to yeah. uh, soldier. Is it an officer he's talking to? No, or is this it- is like Azov. This is basically Azov link. Uh, just like, like an enlisted, just like a regular soldier in the Azov brigade. And 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 this guy is like showing him no respect. It's it's an yeah. amazing video, right? It's like as if a corporal. And the U.S. Army walked up to Joe Biden and said, "Screw you!" Almost, right? I mean, yes, I, I don't like what 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 happens in that video. Yes, exactly. It's not even U.S. Army. This is like a, some kind of a far right paramilitary organization. Like maybe well, well this, hadn't the Azov like, Brigade been uh, uh, integrated into the formally into the military at this point? Uh, no. They were integrated in the National Guard, but uh, in addition to this, they have other like uh, they have other like uh, kind of other forces. Like uh, I see, they have political parties. They have other like a bunch. Of, so it's the whole movement. So this okay. is not only limited. That's why they have uh, they have other kind of units and so on and and. Zelensky was kind of, and there is a video in Ukrainian in which Zelensky was called all these names, basically saying that he is not kind of all this kind of negative name, which was uh, very humiliating to Zelensky. Basically, he shown that he cannot, he has no power to even order like his own uh, kind of military forces, basically to to move from front line because of threats uh, from far right. Another leader of far right, former uh, head of right sector, Yadosh, after mm-hmm. Zelensky was elected, uh, publicly threatened him to to uh, that Zelensky would be hung, basically. Uh, on uh, in Kiev, in uh, downtown Kiev, if he would implement a peaceful uh, kind of deal with Russia uh, mm-hmm. to end this war in Donbass. So basically, you have also 
politician uh, making a kind of uh, uh, assassination sets against a president of a country, and there was no even investigation, nothing. So this was kind of done as uh, as kind of usual. Nobody even kind of paid any attention to this kind of uh, from a legal point of view. So this was taken for granted. And after this, uh, recently, one year before the Russian invasion, there was um, another movement against. Uh, it was called movement against capitulation, which was led by far right and by also Poroshenko against Zelensky, any kind of um, attempt to implement Minsk agreements and so on. And they were, uh, allied organizations went to president, uh, to office of uh, Zelensky. So they went to presidential administration. They, um, uh, police stood by. They did nothing. And, and this, his presidential administration was, uh, kind of ransacked in terms of putting like, uh, they, they took, uh, entrance doors from his administration. They put a swastika on a wall, uh, near, um, uh, kind of, uh, Near entrance to office of Zelensky. So this like swastika was painted on uh, Zelensky wall. They threw like firecrackers and so on. And police did nothing, basically. Police stood by. So this is like a few hundred uh, violent far right activists. And they could not be stopped by police no, and by military. Zelensky had no power basically to, to do anything. So you think them. he, you think he feared for his own life if he pursued peace with Russia? Uh, yes, I think this was a real uh, kind of possibility. And even after the Russian invasion, also uh, the leader of Azov movement and uh, first uh, commander of Azov battalion also mm-hmm. told Zelensky if he would sign agreement, basically there would be a kind of a uh, kind of here uh, there would be like basically he would be kind of physically removed and so on. So this is like a real problem in Ukraine. The far right is not. Uh, Supported by many Ukrainians, it's, it's marginal political force from point of view of public support from their presence in uh, in the parliament or the government. But they have very strong uh, influence over Ukrainian uh, politics, and uh, they can block decisions by Zelensky. And this was illustrated by this uh, by his basically changing uh, policy concerning peaceful resolution of conflict in Donbas. And another reason why Zelensky changed his policy was uh, was Western governments, especially specifically United States. They uh, did not, uh, I think, pressure Zelensky or did not tell Zelensky to implement these agreements. And they specifically, I think, they wanted to use Donbass war also to kind of to contain Russia. So basically, Western policy uh, concerning Ukraine is to use Ukraine as a client state in order to contain Russia. No matter what this involves, like democracy and all this support for independence of Ukraine and, and international law, and this is like just a justification of this geopolitical uh, policy which uh, involves using Ukraine against Russia. And this is, I think, why uh, U.S. government and even uh, governments of France and Germany did not uh, try to force uh, or to make Zelensky to implement Minsk agreements because for them... It was a uh, policy was to contain Russia and recently uh, leaders of, um, uh, former leaders of uh, Germany and France and, uh, and uh, Poroshenko, former president of Ukraine, who all signed Minsk agreement, they said publicly that they do not want to, uh, uh, to sign these agreements in order to have a peaceful resolution of this mm-hmm. conflict. They only wanted to postpone a war between Russia and Ukraine. And this is what happened. I think that this is also very dangerous and uh, uh, such effect on Ukraine and the entire world. So you think the Obama administration made a decision that they did not want the Minsk Accords implemented? No, I think Obama was more kind of um, more rational in this regard. Actually, Obama specifically, I already mentioned, um, mm-hmm. uh, did not want the war between Russia and Ukraine. But it was, it was so. It was during the Trump administration that uh, there was the failure to 
back up Zelensky on Minsk? Uh, yes, basically, Trump was uh, was uh, kind of not involved in any kind of in um, in um, any kind of trying to resolve this conflict peacefully. But uh, the U.S. government officials still continue this policy, basically, of of um, Obama administration concerning Ukraine, and so, but uh, trying also to give Ukraine more weapons because I think one of the issues was Russia Gate scandal, and the Russia Gate scandal made any. A peaceful deal with Russia, politically like very hot potato, basically impossible, politically impossible in the in in the United States because anything which would give any kind of um, uh, kind of concessions to Russia was or any agreement with Russia was considered to be basically kind of uh, almost as national treason in the United States, and this is why Trump uh, also did not do anything to kind of um, to stop this conflict, or trying to find peaceful resolution, and why Biden administration when they came to power, I think they also kind of uh, resulted to this policy of using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia, uh, trying to kind of um, achieve uh, the goal of weakening Russia by using Ukraine. I, I think mm-hmm. this is uh, policy now is continuing. And this is why uh, kind of the war is not likely to end very soon because this is uh, kind of U.S. US government has very strong uh, kind of influence over Ukrainian government. And and it's able to uh, to basically force Zelensky or make Zelensky to sign peaceful agreement. But I think it now it will be very difficult to achieve this because already um the policy of the US and other Western countries is to prolong this war uh, using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia, no matter what kind of consequences for Ukraine this would be, but also uh, there would be also no possibility of a peaceful resolution because not, like which was possible before, because Russia annexed also uh, Donbass and annexed also uh, parts uh, annexed also southern uh, region of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia, which now again would be very impossible and tough to recognized for the new government. For this reason, I think uh, chances of peaceful resolution would be very difficult to achieve. And uh, this was possible in March and in April, but a British Prime Minister, according to Ukrainian media, he visited Zelensky in the beginning of April and told Zelensky not to sign any peaceful deal with Russia, which was mm-hmm. very close to being negotiated by Zelensky and a Russian delegation in Istanbul uh, on behalf of uh, Ukrainian delegation on behalf of Zelensky. But um, uh, Johnson told uh, Zelensky that even if uh, Zelensky would sign peaceful deal with Russia, in such case, uh, Western governments would not provide any guarantees of Ukrainian uh, independence mm-hmm. or, uh, or kind of trying to protect Ukraine if uh, Zelensky would make a deal with uh, Russia. And that it was possible to, I think, uh, to avoid this escalation of the war, it was possible to have uh, basically to Russia withdraw from, uh, from occupied regions of Kherson and Zaporizhia and only would be left de facto with control over Donbass and Crimea, but I think now it would be very difficult to yeah. achieve such um, resolution. Yeah, I've seen those reports about uh, Boris Johnson. I haven't known what to make of them, but uh, I guess the deal in March or April would have been a uh, guarantee not to join NATO. It yes. wouldn't have been it, w- it wouldn't have been a, a, an institution of Minsk, would it? Or, or it just would have been uh, the the separatist held territory remains separatist held, but the, or what? So this was basically uh, Ukrainian government uh, agreed to be neutral, uh, basically not to join NATO, not mm-hmm. to have nuclear weapons and so on. Even mm-hmm. there was no real possibility of doing this anyway. So this was just kind of recognition of this. But uh, the status of um, Donbass and uh, Crimea was supposed to be negotiated separately. 
okay. left all uh, discussed later. So this was kind of one way to deal with this is to basically to to remain like this is like mutual agreement. They do not recognize independence of Donbass, but it was considered to be how to say uh, discussed later or uh, kind mm-hmm. of special status or something like this. De facto, kind of it it um, became. Uh, not uh, kind of uh, controlled by separatists, but uh, the jury it was part of Ukraine. So there was similar possibility for Ukraine uh, to resolve this conflict, but uh, not now because uh, Russia already annexed this region. So I think this is uh, now too late in this regard. Okay. Well, you know, I had uh, I had I had hoped to, uh, to to get into how the current war is being covered and so on in Western media, but we've been doing this for two hours. I know you've got a class to go to. Maybe if you've got time. Uh, down the road, you can come back and talk to us uh, again. Uh, I, I've I've, uh, I've learned a lot from this. Um, the uh, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you an unrelated question. I noticed uh, you co-authored something with Seymour Martin Lipset, very eminent uh, American political scientist who's no longer alive. Was he? Did you study under him at George Mason or something? Uh, yes, exactly. And thank you again for inviting me and I would be happy to talk. I actually went to Josh Mason because I wanted to study with Lipset, Simon Martin Lipset, because I like his theories. Mm-hmm. He was like the, one of the um, kind of most cited uh, political scientists and sociologists yes. of all time. Yes. And this is like uh, for me, and I like his uh, theory because, uh, and his uh, specific study of U.S. politics. I wanted to study U.S. politics because you cannot learn about uh, Ukrainian politics without uh, learning about U.S. politics. So I, I attended uh, classes with Lipset when I kind of was accepted in Josh Mason University program. And actually, uh, when I took his class in democracy, he offered me to become his research assistant. Mm. So I was his research assistant. Uh, working on this project about labor unions in the United States and Canada. And also he became chair of my dissertation on regional conflicts and um, divisions in the separatist divisions and also conflicts in Ukraine and Moldova. So this is um, uh, afterwards, after I graduated, I published a book with him and uh, two other professors from Canada about uh, labor unions in the U.S. and Canada. But this is more than labor unions. This is study of U.S. politics and specifically U.S. culture, which is kind of very important because Lipset is uh, kind of is one of the scholars who studied U.S. very comparatively. And I think he can answer a lot of questions about U.S. perceptions and U.S. foreign policy, which would be very difficult to answer by any other theory. That's why I, I, I like his approach and I was very uh, kind of had a very good opportunity to study with him and um, and uh, and I talked to him many many times and I think uh, this is why I learned about U.S. politics from kind of from uh, from uh, the from the source from uh, whom I like in terms of uh, theory but who, who was also a very great person uh, to uh, to work with and to yeah. talk to and a very a very uh, eminent scholar I mean just extremely well known within uh, within political science. Um, the uh, so listen, uh, thank you. Where can people? Uh, I mean, they can Google you, of course. What what is your Twitter handle? Uh, it's uh, my Twitter is I uh, what is dash also what is I'm not sure like um, bottom uh, kind of dash and uh, Kachanovsky last name. So it's I underscore. I think it's I underscore. Yeah, yes, exactly. Underscore and Kachanovsky, which is I think difficult to spell, but. But also, I think, uh, kind of, um, well, let's, you can, let's, uh, let's, do it. Just... let's, let's do it for them. K A T C H A N O V S K I. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm at Robert Ryder on Twitter, W R I G H T E R, one word. Um, and, and, uh, and so people, uh, do you need to tell them anything else if they want to get to that material? 
we just we discussed about the the Maidan revolution. So my all the, my studies, which I mentioned in this interview, which is I think was very great, and I, I, I like uh, enjoyed my discussion, and and these uh, questions were very informed about the politics of Ukraine. I think uh, they can find all these my studies, which I mentioned in on my uh, academic websites on academia. But if you just Google my last name, it would be very easy to find uh, my uh, research gate with publications, with articles, which I mentioned. And on YouTube, I have channel which contains all the video and the video appendixes for my Maidan my, my my Massacre Studies, yeah. which has all the evidence which I collected for this, for my research, academic research, and also some of my interviews to the media in Canada and other countries in the United States uh, based about, about my research on Ukraine. And I think this is a very important topic, and I think uh, a lot of Americans and um, people in other countries uh, kind of do not get a kind of uh, a clear perspective on uh, this conflict, its origins in Ukraine, and also they have uh, they do not get a lot of information like about Maidan and other issues, which um, kind of a role of far right and so on, because of its uh, political. Uh, it's very politically difficult to talk about this issue, and many people um, do not want to talk about them, or they yeah. want to kind of just brush them aside because this uh, kind of um, becomes, uh, I think, uh, controversial and so on. But I think this is as a scholar, it's very important to discuss. Them, and especially yeah. as a Ukrainian scholar, one of the Ukrainian scholars in the West, I think this is a, a crucial issue to discuss. Yeah, I mean it's understandable in a, in a way that people are not are not always receptive to all perspectives. Uh, war, you know, war is a terrible thing. Putin did invade Ukraine; it was a violation of international law, and uh, you know, horrible things are happening. Um, so it's not surprising, but I do think. Uh, you know, I do think the West, I do think we suffer uh, for not having a more open mind um, and uh, trying to get a more objective view of what's going on. Yes, I think I agree on this issue, yes. Okay, thank you so much, Ivan, and I hope we'll talk down the road. Okay, thank you.